Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, with Nina Serrano, Julieta Kusnir, and Vilma V. Today, we'll be talking about education and the new restaurant at La Peña Cultural Center, Los Cilantros. We'll also talk about the Book of Love Poems by Joel Stryker that was inspired by a life lived in Bogota, Colombia. We also congratulate Luis Medina, the head of our music department, for his 40th anniversary in radio broadcasting. But first, we begin with these news headlines and an update from Brazil where the 2014 World Cup is taking place. Stay tuned! This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending June 15th. Colombia. Incumbent Juan Manuel Santos has been re-elected in a runoff held this past Saturday against conservative candidate Ivan Zualaga. Mr. Santos won nearly 51% of the vote against his challenger, who garnered just 45%. Many see the incumbent's presidential victory as an electoral endorsement of his commitment to peace talks with the left-wing FARC. Santos stated, quote, this is the generation of peace. Millions of Colombians have chosen hope over fear, end quote. Zualaga, who had actually won the first round of voting in May by a very narrow margin, accepted defeat in a concession speech delivered at his campaign headquarters. Mr. Santos will be sworn in to another four-year presidential term sometime this August. Argentina. A debate has begun in the Argentinian parliament over the use of drones after the police in Buenos Aires apparently used one for surveillance purposes. The parliament is considering drafting laws regulating the use of drones, stating that their use for surveillance may be an invasion of public space and of privacy. The debate was touched off by the publication of images apparently taken from a drone flying over a public march on May 14th in the Argentinian capital of Buenos Aires. The parliament made a formal request to the mayor about the, quote, acquisition and utilization of remote aerial drones by the Metropolitan Police, end quote. The police responded that any use of drone technology would be for emergency purposes only. Guatemala. Land activists in Guatemala are increasingly concerned with the Escobal silver mine owned by the Canadian company Tahoe Resources in the outskirts of San Rafael Las Flores in Guatemala. The Escobal mine is in the middle of the country's southern agricultural heartland where most families eke out a living growing maize, beans, coffee, avocados, and bananas. Almost two-thirds of San Rafael's community members expressed their opposition to the mining operation in an informal poll taken back in 2011. Oscar Morales, a co-founder of the Committee in Defense of Peace and Life in San Rafael, stated that Tajo Resources, quote, has no social license to operate its mine, end quote. Earlier this year in May, Guatemalan's president, Otto Perez Molina, declared a state of siege around the Escobal silver mine in an attempt to, quote, quell criminal gangs, end quote. Almost 90% of Guatemalan's mines are Canadian-owned. Estados Unidos. Immigration advocates and public officials are raising concerns about the conditions in which hundreds of undocumented migrant children are being held in a makeshift border patrol facility in Arizona. The facility was said to lack indoor plumbing and other basic necessities. 13,000 unaccompanied minors were apprehended trying to cross into the U.S. in 2012, and 24,000 were apprehended in 2013. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security predicts that the numbers for 2014 could be as high as 60,000. Vice President Joe Biden added a stop to Guatemala while touring Latin America in order to meet with its president and other senior officials to discuss the child migration issue. The majority of the children arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border come from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, and their numbers have increased 1,000% since 2009. 
IT. After months of large street protests that often resulted in police firing volleys of tear gas directly into crowds, the government of Haiti, led by President Martelli, has announced a date for local and legislative elections. The first round of elections, which are two years overdue, will be held on October 26th of this year. The second round has yet to be scheduled. Voters will be asked to cast their ballots for 20 seats in the 30-member Senate, all seats in the lower chamber, and hundreds of municipal posts. Both the government and the opposition blame each other for the slow pace of reconstruction efforts after the devastating earthquake in 2010. This has been a summary of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us track, email us at Chronicles at kpfa.org. The World Cup has started and although not perfect, it is capturing Brazilians and foreigners' eyes and hearts. Last Tuesday, June the 12th, the 2014 World Cup kicked off in Sao Paulo. 62,000 people watched Brazil beat Croatia 3-1. The Brazilian star Neymar scored twice. And President Dilma Rousseff got booed twice. To say that she got booed is an understatement. The words chosen by some of the crowd were very aggressive and disrespectful, even for soccer fans. Both opposition presidential pre-candidates, Aécio Neves and Eduardo Campos, tried to use this unfortunate incident to gain a few votes. And both used the same expression, you reap what you sow. I am not going to reproduce what was shouted at Dilma at the Corinthians arena, but the words are filled with sexism. And many newspaper columnists, even from the section of the media that opposes the PT, were shocked that our commander-in-chief was attacked in such a lowly manner. Folha de São Paulo journalist Eliane Trindade wrote that the offensive words were shouted by, quote, yellow blocks who represent the most privileged part of our society, unquote. Diego Armando Maradona, Argentinian soccer legend, was at the stadium and called the episode, quote, embarrassing, unquote, and said that he had decided to watch the other games at his hotel. President Dilma stated that she didn't feel intimidated and that she has overcome worse things. She was referring to when she was tortured during the Brazilian dictatorship. The backlash was so great that Nevis and Campos changed their minds. Over the weekend, they declared that the words addressed to Dilma were disrespectful. At a PT event, former President Lula gave Dilma a white rose and said that the incident was shameful. Outside the Corinthians arena, a group of nearly 200 protested the World Cup. When they tried to block the Rajao Leste, the most important avenue in the east part of Sao Paulo, the Tropa de Choque, the shock troop, started firing stun grenades and tear gas at the groups. Four journalists were injured, among them two CNN correspondents and one Argentinian photographer. Now the violence of the Sao Paulo military police is known around the world. Last Sunday in Rio, another protest tried to reach the Maracanã Stadium and was also dispersed by the Rio police. Authorities claim that only ticket holders can enter the perimeter established by FIFA around the stadiums. So far, the protests against the World Cup have been small. FIFA and the Brazilian government feared what happened last year during the Confederations Cup when thousands of people managed to get close to the arenas. There are problems, of course, but they're smaller than expected for a World Cup infrastructure that was finished in a hurry. The Corinthians Arena had hydraulic and electric problems during the opening game. The speakers did not work on the Beira Rio Stadium in Porto Alegre, and Honduras and France could not hear their anthems before the game. Fifteen Argentinians tried to invade Maracanã to watch their national team's debut, although they did not have tickets. 
Overall, the urban transportation systems are working as well as the airports. Fans from all over the world are enjoying the games and the host cities with no major incidents reported. If last week Brazilians were not as excited as they could be about the World Cup, now the mood has changed. In Sao Paulo and other cities, Brazilian flags are seen on cars, houses and businesses. Last year the crowds were on the streets, now they're at the stands, cheering and booing. For KPFA's La Raça Chronicles, this is Diogo Antonio Rodriguez from Sao Paulo, Brazil.
You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. We have in the studio with us Darshan Elena Campos. She is part of the Meet Project, which is an interesting new way for young people and everyone really to access community knowledge and information and use technology in a new way. MEEP stands for Mapping Educational Ecosystems Project, and it's recently launching here in the Bay. So, Darshan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Julieta. That's a pleasure to be here. I'm a longtime listener. So you are part of this very exciting new project that a lot of educators are really looking forward to new ways of thinking about how to spread information and to share information that they currently have. Tell us about this MEEP project. So the idea behind MEEP, Mapping Educational Ecosystems Project, is to have a learning community of educators. And the idea is if as educators we can come together across the spectrum of our institutions, whether we teach in grade school, whether we teach graduate school, whether we do ceramic classes, computer classes for seniors, the learning community of educators to bring us together and share our strategies and solutions for educational transformation. So that's one element is it's a learning community for educators. And then the second element is it's an open source platform. In that sense, technology is very much at the centerpiece of what it is that we're doing as educators. And we're trying to share resources and strategies. Some of that is curriculum, When people come to our community learning lab, um, we're having one in um, South Berkeley on the 21st, they're going to be going through a series of mapping techniques. And with those mapping techniques, you're going to be learning strategies for visual thinking, for thinking in community, for sharing solutions together. It's not a traditional lecture model, but it's creating knowledge and strategy together as a community. And so for participants in our events or people who go to our website, what they're going to be able to access is all of our curriculum, all of our learning activities. They're going to be able to shape MEEP to get it to be what it is um, for them, for their needs, for their goals. And in that sense, it's an open source platform. So you make it what you need it to be. Great. And who else is part of this team that has put this together? So MEEP actually has a funny origin story. So I was presenting at a conference and the organizer was like, oh, you need to meet this other person, Pavel Luksha. It sounds like you have a lot in common. And so I met Pavel Luksha. He's done amazing work as an educator in Russia as part of the Russian Education Foresight Initiative. And we started chatting and we were like, oh, we have all these great ideas. And so I decided to throw a smart dinner party. What makes a dinner party smart? It's when you organize it around a theme or a question. And so for us, it was, what do we need as educators? And so within two days of meeting Pavel Luksha, I threw a smart dinner party at my house, pulled together over 10 different educators across the the spectrum of learning institutions. So we had an instructional technologist at one of our local colleges. We had somebody who had worked for the Prison University Project. We had other people who are online writers for websites such as Great Schools, just sharing our ideas and strategies. And it was in that, that space of a series of smart dinner parties where MEEP was born, where a Mapping Educational Ecosystems Project came into being. And in the end, it ended up being launched. MEEP was launched by myself, Darshan Elena Campos, Pavel Luksha, and Jeff Nagata. He's a local educator. He just graduated from UC Berkeley in 2012, I believe. And he's been doing a beautiful program, leading a compassionate leadership program at Berkeley High School. And so it's been the three of us, Jeff, Pavel, and myself, that have launched MEEP. But what went into it was really the smarts of more than 25 different educators coming together and shaping our goals and needs as a community. And that's where MEEP came from. And then in addition to the community learning labs, we're also, we're still working on it now, but we're going to be launching a wiki. And the idea behind it is for us to share our curriculum, allow other people to remix it, redesign it, transform it entirely and use it to meet their needs, but then also share other educational resources. Because our belief is that we actually have the knowledge within our community to transform our institutions and make them work better for all people, including our community, especially immigrant communities. We have that strength, we have that power, and we can use technology as a tool to empower our communities and to create the educational system that we need. So for us, part of it is to think about the different ways that we teach. So for me, as an educator, one thing that I do is I largely have retired the lecture. I don't. What I'll do with my students, and I primarily teach at the college level, but I also have taught in high schools and community organizations. And one thing that I do, for example, is I'll frame a conversation. But for the most part, what I do is I create open learning experiences. I give my students the, the tools 
to ask questions. And then they answer those questions in community by tapping into their own expertise, their own experiences, and then using that to make sense of new material, whether that's a new concept, whether that's a new research method, or sometimes it's even just finding ways to talk differently because so many of us speak different languages, not just Spanish, English, Cantonese, but also we speak in different ways when we're on the streets, when we're with our families, when we're with peers, when we're with elders like myself. I'm an elder in relationship to my students. That's one of the ways in which for me, I'm trying to transform how it is that students learn and in sharing that strategy with other people like me who teach in different circumstances, whether it's the senior center or at Malcolm X Elementary, we can then enrich our practice by having other ideas. So part of MEEP is to really have at the centerpiece, what are the things that we're doing that are working? And let's share them. If we can share those successes, that's part of the way to get to our educational transformation. So I know that the 21st, you all have an event coming up around the corner. What can people expect if they attend this learning lab, where is it? How do they plug in and find out more information about it? And what can they expect when they attend? So we're having a community learning lab on the 21st in South Berkeley. Um, you can learn more about this at our website, www.meepwiki.org, www.meepwiki.org, meepwiki. And what we're going to be doing at the community learning lab is sharing our strategies and solutions for educational transformation. We're going to be working in small teams over the course of the day. We're going to meet at 10 in the morning. We're going to be going till 5 at night. And during those hours, we're going to be gathering and sharing our expertise, working in different teams, and then using our experience and um, perspectives as educators to then identify the solutions and strategies that are working for us, for our learners, for ourselves, to create that next step. So in the course of the day, you will work in teams. And so by the end of the day, you will have had conversations with up to 25 different people in detailed conversations about what your experience looks like as an educator. What are the conditions under which you're learning and teaching? And how, when we share those, we can understand education a little bit differently. And so at the Learning Lab, it's a space for us to connect, share our ideas, go through these different mapping techniques. And we have everything from personal mapping, where does learning happen in your life? And where do you want it to happen? To spatial mapping, so literally looking at spatial maps and figuring out where is the learning happening in our community? What specific locations is it happening? How can we connect those locations? And then affinity mapping, which is looking at the points of unity, the points of connection that we have. And that's some of the things we're going to be doing at our community learning lab at the 21st of June. And so that's right around the corner. So if people want to attend and they want to get more information, what do they have to do? Please attend. MEEP is going to succeed because it has the smarts of educators like you. And so please um, participate. You can get more information by doing a general search online. If you look for MEEP Mapping Educational Ecosystems Project, if you go to our website, meepwiki.org. And then if you do a search for Eventbrite, you can register for our event. We'd love to have you there. Sliding scale starting at zero. What we want is your smarts and your whole body, your whole experiences. That's really what's going to allow us to transform education is, is if we really do have the voices of everybody. So who would you consider an educator? Educator is kind of a broad term. How do you define educator? One of our dreams for, for MEEP is to understand that education happens everywhere in all places and to think of ourselves and many people within our communities, educators, even those who don't. So for many of us, for example, work in domestic violence center where we teach healing circles, or we work in public libraries where we do family literacy programs, or we are working at some of the local educational technology companies and trying to think, what is the internet? How can we use that to foster research, collaboration? What is its role? in our educational future and our educational present. So our idea then is to think and pull together educators across the spectrum, understand the different sort of strengths that we bring, and then use that to tackle some of the more challenging areas, like for example, the prevalence of violence on so many campuses, the school to prison pipeline. There are really severe issues that we have in so many of our communities. And if we can start identifying what those problems are and then collectivizing our knowledge 
and identifying the solutions that can change that, that will produce the situation that we need that supports all communities. How do these issues that MEEP hopes to support educators as they grapple with some of the many issues that you've mentioned, how do they specifically affect or do you see a difference or in the way that Latino communities are impacted by these many ed- issues in the educational system and societal issues that you've mentioned? So I grew up in an immigrant community and you know, most of the work that I do as an educator is with youth of color and immigrant students. And our families are incredibly rich in terms of the knowledge that we have. Many of us speak languages other than English at the home, whether it's, you know, Quechua or Spanish. Many of us speak different languages, and that's an incredible richness that we have. But sometimes within our schools, our languages, our home languages, our ancestral languages are seen as deficits, as problems, as barriers to our learning. And so one of the ideas for me, for me as an educator, is to connect with other educators who really want to understand and support the richness of our communities, the vast wealth of knowledge and community and language and tradition that we have and put that at the center of our teaching practice. Because for us, educational transformation isn't enough. What we want is holistic learning that benefits everyone, including our families. So maybe Abuelita speaks no English, but she is a source of wealth and richness in the family and the traditions that she passes on, whether those are healing traditions, cooking traditions, language traditions, to, to figure out a way to sort of recognize and support the role that she plays as an educator and think about how we can connect that to what is then happening in our traditional classrooms, K through 12, for example, but also what is happening in other spaces in our community where we can get support or where we learn, such as the local library. That's the voice of Darshan Elena Campos, and she's one of the people who is working on this new project, and you can find out more on their website. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Julieta. It's been a pleasure. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. I have in the studio today Luis Medina. You know him as a DJ. You know him as the head of the music department here at KPFA. And I'm interviewing him today because this is the time of his 40th radio anniversary. Bienvenidos, Luis, to La Raza Chronicles. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here, Nina. Thank you for asking me to be here. Well, everybody says, how could this be his 40th anniversary? Did he start at birth? No, I actually, it's really a curious story. Well, what actually happened was that I caught the radio bug real early in my life. When I was six years old, my parents gave me a toy microphone because I used to see TV and I used to see talk shows. And it was something that I always enjoyed playing with. And then, you know, we fast forward to attending San Francisco State University. When I first attended San Francisco State, I was studying design and industry, wanting to be an architect. And about two years into the program, I decided that it wasn't for me, and I wanted to make the change to broadcast communications, which I did. You know, it was one of the few Latinos at that time, which was back around 1974 that I got accepted into the department. And, you know, it was around 20 years old at that time. And what happened during that time was that my cousin was involved with a group that did radio at KBRG called Venezuela Suya. And he ended up getting a radio program overnight at a new community radio station called KPOO. And he invited me along to provide the music, and I provided the music for the program. And then I was allowed to do some spots there. And, you know, one thing led to the other, and I ended up being on radio KPOO from about 1974 through 1979, and the first stage, you could say, of my career. So then how did you get to KPFA? Well, what happened, curiously enough, in 1975, Greg Landau invited invited me to participate in a program at KPFA that he was putting together called Music of Revolutionary Cuba. And I was invited 
to come to the station and to do some voice tracks for this show, which was a really great show. You know, at that particular time, Cuban music was hardly heard in the United States. So it was great to be part of this program where we played music from everybody from Silvio Rodriguez to Iraquera at the time to early Van Van and Aragon and that type of music. And so I became involved with KPFA sporadically. I did that special for Greg in 75, with Greg in 75. And then in 76, myself and Chata Gutierrez, we were paired up as part of the Savori Saver block. And we did that for about six months. And then unceremoniously, all of us got kicked out <laughs> due to some politics, some political flack that came down with, you know, the management of the station at La Raza. And I ended up not returning to KPFA till about 1982. And between 1980 and 1981, I did commercial radio over KBRG. And I did Sabor Caliente, which was six hours every Sunday. And what was distinctive about that, I was the only DJ ever to be in a Spanish language station doing a bilingual salsa show where the emphasis was primarily in English. And that was unheard of at that time. And I did it. I did it from 1980 through 1981. It was an incredible experience. And then how did you become the music director here at KPFA? Oh, that's that comes way later, you know, as you know, or may not know, is I'm currently celebrating my 17th year doing Con Sabor on Saturday nights from 9 to 11 on KBFA. And what happened was that around 2001, I left my previous job, which was a side gig, you could say, in the corporate banking industry. But I still kept work in broadcasting and in entertainment. And so what happened was in 2001, you know, they were looking for a music director, I applied and I got the job. And I didn't expect to be here as music director now in 2014, but here I am doing that and, and broadcasting radio. And what would you say your contribution to KPFA's music department has been? What directions have you taken music into at this station? Well, what I've done is I've expanded the attention focused on world music, for one. I elevated the visibility of this radio station through various communities, including music community as well as the media community in terms of our visibility and doing events. And we have co-sponsored events at Stern Grove. We have co-sponsored events at the San Francisco Jazz Festival. We have worked with international artists from Yusu Endur to Los Van Van, you know, and we continue to do so. Elevated the stature of music of the world in terms of visibility, even though the show was cut back from two hours to one hour in a very controversial move back in 2010. But despite that, kind of solidified the presence of, of music here at KPFA and tried to call more attention to the contributions of the very many music programmers we have here. You know, we have a staff of ethnomusicologists, of musicians, of producers, of people that are in the scene in terms of creating music, in terms of promoting music, and in terms of champion music here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And now that we're in the internet or have been at kpfa.org, those contributions are heard worldwide. So what is the range of music? What are some of the music programs that you are promoting? Well, you know what? Part of my job is to make music available to programmers here. So that requires that the person in my position has to have wide ears and open ears. And I've had open ears since I started really listening intensely to music when I was around 10 years old. Although music was always in the household, you know, music and radio was always in the household. 10 years old, I got exposed to different types of music, soul music, and then the Beatles coming around really kind of like opened things up for me. So I've always been very eclectic. And so I have to be very eclectic in taste for the radio station so that I put in everything from, let's say, you know, esoteric music coming from China to 
the Black Keys. And, you know, I have to be open to putting hip-hop in the library, to putting Americana, country music, uh, rock music. I have to be open. So because of my training and my background and my education in these fields and these disciplines and being a DJ myself and also being a programmer for outdoor festivals for entertainment, it's helped me be more eclectic and serve the needs of what is needed here in the radio station. Well, I've been listening to your program for the last 17 years and enjoying them very much. I always associate you with very upbeat salsa and danceable music. Well, that's my forte. You know, I've always have loved uh, Latin music. Like I said, it was in my household when I was growing up. I really got exposed to salsa when I was going to Mission High School. And actually, a bit before when I was still going to James Lick Middle School, and some of the first recordings that really I got turned on in terms of Latin music was Tito Puente and Mongo Santa Maria. And then when I was going to Mission High School, when somebody handed me and turned me on to the Fanny All-Star, live at the cheetah that was it and so when i had the opportunity to be in radio about 1974 the salsa boom was happening and i was very fortunate to be one of the voices that made up the salsa vanguard as i call it on radio in public radio here in the san francisco bay area and help hit people to what was happening in New York, what was happening in Puerto Rico, in Cuba, expand my repertoire. I was fortunate to have some very good friends that took the time to pull me aside and turn me on to Abelardo Barroso, Benny More, you know, all the great conjuntos that existed in Cuba, charangas, you know, danzones, and that's how I got my education. And of course, you know, being exposed to the great music that existed in the 20s through the 50s and 60s, like everybody else, I was caught up with the salsa bug in the 70s. And here I am in 2014, still living my passion. What can I say? Well, the range of music here on KPFA is so tremendous. The Sunday morning classical music with Mary Berg, the music that we hear from the Middle East that I don't think I would ever have become that familiar with if there wasn't the world music. It's been a wonderful contribution to listeners, to our ears, our education, our sense of being part of a planet, a planet of sound, a planet of music. So muchas gracias, Luis Medina, for your wonderful contribution in these 40 years, and where's the celebration going to be? Well, yeah, actually some people planned this out. It kind of came up as an idea, and it snowballed. There's going to be celebration of my 40 years in radio and broadcasting, and that's going to be taking place on Saturday, June the 21st. Doors open at 6 p.m. over at El Basilón, and that's at the Oasis Cafe, 401 California Avenue in Treasure Island, and it's going to be featuring a band direct from Los Angeles, Hollywood. First time playing out here, their San Francisco debut, and they're called Son y Clave from Los Angeles, and they're going to be part of a double bill with a great band that I love a lot that are that get together from time to time because they're all all-stars. They're called Carabali, and they feature Carl Perasso, the timbale, the timbale player, percussionist for Santana, and also he heads Avanza, another great band, and also Grammy-nominated percussionist Michael Spiro. They're the co-leaders of the band, and they have all-stars playing with them that are band leaders in their own right. So it's going to be an evening of great dancing, a lot of hot salsa. There's going to be special guest DJs. I just heard that my good friend DJ Carlitos Way is going to be in the mix as well. I might feel good and throw down a set or two myself, you know, but there'll be food that's going to be available. There'll be plenty of room to dance. It's going to be an explosive evening of salsa music. If you love salsa, I know the DJs will probably be playing also in addition to salsa dura and salsa that everybody loves. They'll probably play a few, maybe a merengue, maybe some bachata we'll see you know we'll see what happens so tell us the date and the place again okay it's going to be saturday june 21st doors open at six it's going to go all the way till 2 a.m it's going to be at el basilon at the oasis cafe that's 401 california avenue in treasure island and if you want any ticket information please go to eventbrite that's uh, event, then bright is spelled B-R-I-T-E dot com. And the code is El Dia de Puerto Rico.
They called it that way as well. <laughs> well, felicidades, Luis, y muchas gracias. Thank you for your time. Nina, it was a pleasure to be here. We've been hearing so much about the new cafe at La Peña Cultural Center in Berkeley that you've named Los Cilantros. Does that mean there's going to be lots of cilantro in the food? <laughs> yeah, of course. Since it's a Mexican food, it's like a lot of cilantro over there. But we have a lot of dishes who has no cilantro on it because I know a lot of people doesn't like cilantro. You've been a chef all your life? Well, I've been working in La Cocina inside of my mom's kitchen all the time. So I've been working like professionally like for six years now. And you've always been doing Mexican cooking? Always Mexican food, yeah. Can you give us an idea of some of the menus that we can expect? The menu is very, very simple and delicious. And that's the way I like to cook. Like not too many ingredients, but fresh and high quality ingredients makes huge difference and we uh, we have chilaquiles it's the way they are like the way my mom used to cook them they have been very successful and the menu looks like carnitas barbacoa sopes lacoyitos very authentic what's lacoyitos lacoyitos it's a blue corn masa it's like a sope it's some masa filled with requesón and it's like cooked on the comal with a little bit of olive oil. And then inside has requesón, which is a kind of cheese, topped with guajillo salsa, mm. sour cream, queso fresco, and red onion. They are, like, very, very good. Oh, sounds delicious. What's been your most popular dish so far in these last three weeks? We started with carnitas, and they, they have been very popular. But now, like, after a week, we put barbacoa, so now it's barbacoa more popular than carnitas. So. And we made blue corn masa, tortillas, and uh, agua fresca, like, all the time. Which fruits do you use? Uh, we change every day. So we made agua fresca de mango, agua fresca de guayaba, sandía, piña, like pineapple, watermelon, guava. So it's, like, different. And do you serve breakfast, lunch, and dinner? We are there only 8 to 2 right now. We have brunch, like, basically every day. But we are hoping to have a few nights, at least two or three nights at La Peña. So, but right now we are mornings only. We close on Monday, and we open like six days a week. And about how many people are working in the kitchen? Right now, it's three people, four, and we have one person making tortillas all the time. Just a dedicated tortilla maker? Well, it's like tortillas, tamales, everything that is made with masa. Tortillas is an art, and women are doing it right now. These are handmade tortillas. Yeah. We do it, like, very, very fresh. You can taste the difference. And how about the wait staff? How many people are waiting on the tables? Two. It's just the beginning. We are not very busy, but we have two servers. What are your plans? How do you see this developing? My plans are to give opportunity to people to try the food. That it's like very authentic. I am very happy to share my mom's recipes and the way that we used to cook. And my plan is like yeah, have uh, the restaurant full. But my my other plan is to bring back the handmade tortillas. We are like losing that culture, and it's so so delicious and 
like important for me. So that's another thing. Do you have special holiday foods that you're thinking of bringing back as the year progresses? Yeah, uh, I really love Dia de los Muertos. And because of the flavors and the colors and the candles and all that uh, Dia de los Muertos reminds me. We made pan de muertos, which is a kind of bread that my mom used to make every year for the ofrendas. So we, I know the recipe of the pan de los muertos and the shapes and uh, all that. It's like a very, very nice thing. Really, I want to make pozole all the time, even though like pozole, it's something that for a party of, or for a special occasion because of uh, the time that takes to make it from scratch. So I cook the corn and then you have to cook it like for six hours to make the, the original um Pozole. Because you make nixtamal first, and then you wash it, and then you cook it. Like It's very hard, so you have to cook it like slowly for like six, seven hours. And taste like delicious, no? It's not from a can. You have uh, We make it like uh, very fresh. So you're planning to have that available every day? At least every weekend. Yeah, like weekend special. And what about other holiday times? We want to do like specials all the time. I, I really like barbacoa made from goat or lamb, but usually people like, not everyone likes like goat. So we want to make special with that kind of food or chiles and nogada. When we have the pomegranate, we want to do that, like a special. So can people find out the menu by calling in advance or going on the website? How will they find out what's on for today? We we are working hard on our on the media now, like on Facebook. A lot of people follow us on Facebook now. So we're going to put the specials on Facebook. And we have a website where we're going to put like Tuesday, we're going to have like barbacoa de chivo or something special. How will people find the website? What's the address? It's www.losilantros-sf.com. And then they can also f- become friends? Yeah, they can like us on Facebook and we put everything, like we update the Facebook. Right? So once a person becomes a friend on Facebook, they could count on getting the, the announcements about the specials and... Some new things that we're doing, we, we're going to post it. On and can Facebook. you make reservations? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we can take reservations. About how much notice do you need? Like two or three days. Yeah, it depends on how many people. Like two weeks ago, we have a reservation for 75. So Wow. <laughs> that was a big one. So people is asking me to plan like little parties. A guy came and he wants to celebrate his mom's birthday. So he let us organize everything. So he just came with his mom. How big is the capacity? We have like uh, 45 seats and we have a little patio outside and it's for 10 people. Um, but we have an, a room next door. Make an appointment and we they can want to have a small meeting with food. We can do that too. So how did you deal with the 75 people? It was great. So we set a menu and we give them some appetizers and then a family style uh, lunch. It was good. Just great. And what about the decor? The, the restaurant is very nice right now because La Peña, they make very nice changes. The tables are very nice. I brought tablecloths and flowers. In this next flowers, segment, Nina Serrano speaks music with over the there, chef so of La Peña Cultural Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in so it's Los not too Cilantros. early to put in a reservation for the 21st and the 22nd, oh, no. is no, it? No, no, no. <laughs> no, you can make reservations. So that's www.loscilantros.sf.com. That's right. And Facebook. And Facebook, too. Yeah. Well, muchas gracias, Dilsa, and we wish you every success. Thank you very much. Muchas gracias. Un placer.
to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm your host, Vanessa Bohm, and I have in studio with me Joel Stryker. He is a San Francisco-based anthropologist, writer, translator, and poet who has just come out with his first book of poetry called El Amor en los Tiempos de Belisario. Welcome, Joel, to La Raza Chronicles. Thank you, Vanessa. Well, let's just get right into this book. I was reading the introduction last night, and I was so captivated about the backstory behind these poems. Tell us a little bit how you began to write this poetry, because it goes back to the time that you lived in Colombia in the 1980s. Yeah, I was in Bogota as part of my undergraduate studies. I was studying at the University of Michigan, and I transferred for a year and a half to La Universidad de Los Andes. I had written a little bit of poetry while I was at Michigan in Ann Arbor. When I was in Bogota, it suddenly seemed much more important that I record what was going on with my life, which I did in exhausting and exhaustive detail to some degree um, in journals. But I also felt compelled to write poetry because I felt that it better captured specific moments that I wanted to preserve. And also to say, frankly, at the same time, I wanted to preserve them and present them to other people. In particular, the woman that I was in love with at the time, probably half of the poems in this collection and that I wrote at that time were dedicated to her or in some way had to do with her, although the other part of the poems had to do more with the city itself, uh, which is why the title is as it is, because in English it would be um, Love in the Time of Belisario. Belisario is a reference to Belisario Betancourt, who was president of Colombia for four years beginning in 1983. So that the title is a way of defining the historical context in which these poems, mostly love poems, but also some poems with more um, a more political content. Well, as you mentioned, these aren't just any poems, they're love poems. So let's have you read a little bit. And so our listeners know you actually wrote this book of poetry in Spanish. That's correct. I was living, eating, drinking, loving, living in Spanish at that time. So I'll ask you afterwards maybe to give us a little summary in English. Sure. What will you read for us? None of the poems have titles, so I'm just going to read the poem. No te quiero mañana, ni por el resto de la vida de nadie. Te quiero ahora, ahora mismo sin fantasmas ni tibiezas. Quiero descarrar este momento con nuestro abrazo. Abrir la tarde de par en par con un beso. Con una caricia ensanchar sus cauces hasta delirar en otras orillas. Beautiful. Tell Thank us you. about it. It's a love poem. It's, a, it's a, a poem of desperation, of wanting a particular moment of time to extend beyond the moment that, that it could possibly really extend. It's wanting to have something permanent out of something that's impermanent, and that the, the impermanent things are those moments of complete joy and of complete love. I'm just curious. You're a native English speaker, and you went to live in Colombia. What made you write these poems in Spanish instead of English? Well, one of the reasons to go to Colombia originally was to live a different life and 
a big part of that was to live in a different language. When I first arrived, my Spanish was actually pretty good. I had excellent teachers in high school and for a variety of reasons had had contact with um, native Spanish speakers and so did speak some, some Spanish while I was in the United States. And obviously, my Spanish got a lot better by virtue of living in Colombia. I was keeping a, a journal, and I decided I would keep a journal in Spanish so it would help improve my Spanish, and also so that my thoughts would more naturally come in Spanish. Because I didn't hang around with other English speakers, I was taking classes, all of which were in Spanish. And again, I wanted to live my life in another way and in another language. So it made sense that when I was writing that I would, I would naturally start writing in, in Spanish. Well, you are going to be presenting this book of poetry, El Amor en los Tiempos de Belisario, at Modern Times tomorrow, Wednesday, June 18th at 7 p.m. And Modern Times is located on 24th Street on the corner of Alabama Street in the Mission District. But why don't you read another poem so our listeners know what they have in store when they go see you tomorrow? Great. Here goes. A estas horas el aire está frío y gris. Perros y gente en trapos recorren los montes de basura. Sus ojos furtivos te miran, te clavan por un instante no más. Esos ojos, ese hambre, siguen quemando después de que inician el día los primeros buses repletos de cansancio. Tell us a little bit about that poem. All, all the poems, none of the poems have titles, but they all have, um, they're all dated. And this one was written on Friday, August 6, 1982 at 6.15 a.m. And it's about the experience of being out on the street at that early hour when there are still homeless people and recyclers, people who go through, the, through garbage looking for recyclable materials to sell, still out on the street. Other people are just waking up to get their days underway. And it's kind of that encounter that where you feel a little bit uneasy, I'm speaking from my perspective, of course, feeling a little uneasy seeing people go through garbage because they have no alternative means of sustaining themselves. They don't feel, in the main, too proud of what they're doing. It's kind of an uneasy encounter. And it's not a very good buen aguero. It's not an auspicious beginning to the day. So this is a really exciting time for you. You're just publishing your first book of poetry. You also got to participate recently in the International Book Fair in Bogota. Tell right. us what that experience was like. The International Book Fair was was wonderful. I'd never been to the fair before, and I hadn't been back to Bogota for about 25 years. It was wonderful to meet in person the people that had taken it upon themselves to publish my first and probably last book of poetry. Very generous interesting, cultured people. It seems like every third person in, in Colombia is a poet or wants to be a poet. Um, and I must have met half of them when I was there and came back with a suitcase full of books that complete strangers had given to me and written wonderful dedications in. And I left probably 50 or 60 of my books there with those strangers as well and made some friends who I'm certain I'll, I'll remain in contact with. It was interesting to meet Colombian writers. I actually got to meet some people who I've translated but who I've never met in person. It was wonderful to finally meet them. It was interesting. The day of the book launch, the publishing house that I published with is called Comun Presencia Editores. They published 15 books this year, and we were all invited to the, to the book launch. And um, four of the poets, me included, read at a panel there. There was something emblematic about how we got to the place that we were, the physical place where we were going to read, because we all met at the, at the booth, of Comun Presencia, and then one of the co-founders of the, of the publishing house took us all in a group across the fairgrounds looking for the room. And it was a new room. It didn't appear on any maps. So we spent about 15 minutes wandering around, asking people directions. Everybody, of course, had a different idea of where the place was. And so there we were behind our fearless leader, all the um, all the lost poets trying to find their room. It was actually pretty hilarious. We got there just in time. The room filled up, much to my surprise, um, because I thought, you know, this is a fairly small publishing house. It's well-respected. And yet they filled a room that held about 150 people. They filled it over capacity. And the audience was very engaged in what we were doing. Well, I just want to remind our listeners again that you will be presenting your work and reading from your first book of poetry, El Amor en los Tiempos de Belisario, tomorrow at Modern Times Bookstore in San Francisco which is located on 24th Street at Alabama. 
It will be at 7 p.m., but we should let our listeners know that you'll be doing this presentation in Spanish. Right. I also want to put in a plug for the person who's going to be the MC tomorrow night, Rafael Dumet, professor of Spanish at University of San Francisco and a, a novelist and a playwright. Peruvian, who's written a phenomenal novel called El Espia del Inca, which at this moment is available only in electronic format. He's working on a deal for um, a paper version of it. If you can get your hands on that, I highly recommend it. It's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Joel Stryker, for coming in and speaking with us. We hope this is not your last book and certainly that you translate this book into English one day so that more of our listeners can read this beautiful work. It's a great idea, Vanessa. Thanks. Thanks. 